Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Open your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to risk something. I'm going to risk that some of you here today know that chorus, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Would you join me? Let's sing that together. Spirit of the living God, Fall afresh on me, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill Jesus' name, Father, come and talk to us. We love your word and we trust it without any reservation. But this is not a magic book. Come, take over, interrupt. And in the process, comfort, console, correct, convict, convert. Amen. In Luke chapter 24, on the evening of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ told his disciples, the Old Testament has foretold the gospel. You are now the witnesses of what those scriptures set forth my death and resurrection, and forgiveness to repentant sinners on the basis of that work. There, there is your message, men. Moreover, here is your method. Go everywhere and herald it. 
placard it. Proclaim it. Declare what God has done and how men must respond. Which is not an invitation. It is a summons. An invitation is what I get to go to a party on a Friday night. I might receive it. I might decline. That is not the offer of the gospel. To refuse it is not to decline. It is to defy. It is a command. Repent. Believe. That's not an invitation. That is a summons. But as it were, Jesus says, there is one last thing, dear friends. Never forget that though you cherish the right message and remain faithful to the ordained method, you still lack the one thing that will make your mission successful. The appropriate means. And so Jesus says, behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, But you were to stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. Forty days later, just prior to his ascension, he reminds these very same disciples of the very same thing. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Young men and women, there is a message that is to govern everything we say. There is a method that defines the predominant communication of that message, and yet all of it will amount to nothing apart from the sovereign manifestation of the necessary means. The power of the Holy Spirit is the sine qua non of all gospel ministry, the one thing without which nothing else matters. True apostolic ministry is characterized by a determination to appropriate a foolish method, A determination to proclaim a foolish message. And for this morning, I want us to give our attention to the fact that apostolic ministry is characterized by a determination to rest upon a foolish means. Now, my friends, as we talked about a bit last time, true Christian preaching involves a certain kind of style, a style that doesn't obliterate your personality, no, not at all, but a style that is in clear and obvious harmony with the message of the cross. Paul says in 117, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. How? Not with wisdom and eloquence. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Chapter 2, verse 1, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Chapter 2, verse 4, 
My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, Paul does not mean that he never employed wisdom. If you drop your eye down to verse 6, you discover something quite to the contrary. Nor does this suggest that Paul made no attempt to be persuasive. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we try, we attempt to persuade people. Rather, the idea is that he avoids persuasion that is at its core manipulative. Paul is going after the hearts of people. There can be no mistaking that. This is his aim. We may indeed get there this morning if we have time. But in going after the hearts of people, he wants there to be no competitors for their affections. That is to say, he wants their hearts to be captured by the gospel, not his slick presentation of it. And so he intentionally refrains from any technique of communication that all by itself might draw out a response from his listeners. He knows, you see, theologically, that a response that is drawn out by anything other than the naked gospel will not prove to be a saving response. If it is a response drawn out by the dimming of the lights... A response drawn out by the playing of soft music, a response drawn out by the powerful stories of a preacher, then it will not prove to be a saving response. Now, such responses may indeed boost the ego of the preacher, but Paul's aim is to win people to Jesus Christ. Therefore, any technique that might have confused the latter objective with the former was altogether eliminated. Where the affections of people are at stake, no competitors would be allowed. The gospel must capture their hearts, not the genius of those who seek to communicate it. Methodology then, methodology, is not neutral. Now, friends, I understand that if we dare to stand up in front of our congregations and speak to this issue... The very real possibility exists of hearing a response something akin to this. Well, Art, I appreciate your enthusiasm. I respect your idealism. But I have to tell you, my friend, I'm a bird of a different feather. Both of my feet are planted deeply and squarely in reality. I work a real job in the real world. I have to be practical to survive. So let me ask you. How in the world do you expect the gospel to succeed if you strip away from its communication all of the techniques that drive every other message in our day? And what we must be both courageous and humble enough to say in response is, I am foolish enough to expect it to succeed by the means of the power of God himself. Verse 4 of chapter 2, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the spirit and power. It is a hendiades, the spirit's power. Now, this word here, Paul uses this word demonstration. It means a certain proof, evidence, verification. It implies making something known, but that which is made known in a clear, convincing, and confirming manner, and therefore shown to be true. But, of course, the interesting thing about this word, this apodexis, is that it appears nowhere else in the New Testament. And so it's of some value to consider how this word was used outside, external to the New Testament, 
And in the Greek world, where rhetoric and oratory were so highly prized, it was used on occasion to speak of the evidence an orator would give so as to prove the validity of his argument. It was used to speak of a testimony offered in a court of law. In the Greek mystery religions, it was used to speak of the direct intervention of a divinity. And what Paul is saying here is, my preaching was confirmed in you, not because I drew upon the latest and coolest and most sophisticated techniques of communication, rather the internal verification of my preaching, that which caused it to be so forcefully persuasive and convincing, was the immediate intervention and power of the Spirit of God. We proclaim God's testimony concerning His Son, verified by the power of the Spirit. And this is what makes the foolish message and the foolish method effectual in the lives of the people of God. It is, my friends, the work of the Holy Spirit pouring out His power upon the proclamation of the message so as to produce effects that serve to glorify Jesus Christ. It's been referred to in many different ways throughout the years. Spurgeon referred to this as the sacred anointing. Whitfield called it the thunder and lightning in his sermons. The Puritans labeled it that certain unction. Maybe the most helpful definition, certainly a definition that has classic overtones to it, is that which comes to us from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a bit dated, but worth hearing. What is this? It is the Holy Spirit falling upon the preacher in a special manner. It is an access of power. It is God giving power and enabling through the Spirit to the preacher in order that he may do this work in a manner that lifts it beyond the efforts and endeavors of man to a position in which the preacher is being used by the Spirit and becomes the channel through whom the Spirit works. It is the vitality of the Spirit, his work of glorifying Jesus Christ through fallible men who faithfully proclaim the Christocentric scriptures. It is the power of God in the proclamation of the truth of God. Now we need to think a bit about the Bible. Have you ever noticed how frequently the Bible displays a very tight connection between the coming of the Spirit of God and the subsequent hearing of the Word of God? In the Old Testament alone, this relationship appears dozens of times. In Numbers chapter 11, for example, we read of the Spirit of God resting upon the 70 elders of Israel with the result that they prophesy the coming upon of the Spirit of God for the making known of the Word of God. In fact, if you remember, Joshua actually gets a little bit jealous for Moses. And Moses says, Oh, Joshua, would that all the Lord's people were prophets so that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. You hear the tacit implication, the coming upon of the Spirit for the making known of the Word of God. And of course, Moses' dream, Moses' desire on the plane of redemptive history is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, isn't it? But again, you see the connection, the coming upon of the Spirit of God for the making known of the Word of God. In Numbers 24, a passage I'll never be able to figure out, we read of the Spirit of God coming upon Balaam with the result that he, even as an unbeliever, speaks the word of the Lord. 
In 2 Samuel 23, we read of King David who says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. 2 Chronicles 24, Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, The coming upon of the Spirit of God for the making known of the word of God. In the book of Nehemiah, when the people are recounting their past failures before God and, and God's subsequent mercy to them, they say, You bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. There it all comes together, God's word by his spirit through human agency. In Ezekiel 11, the prophet writes, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell on me, and he said, Say, Thus says the Lord. And we could very easily go on and on and on all morning long. B.B. Warfield says, This is among the most predominant ministries of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that we find on the pages of our Old Covenant Scriptures. Over and over and over again, the Holy Spirit coming upon people so that through them he might make known the word of God. And then what happens? We come to the New Testament, and we begin to read of a particular phrase that appears several times, Luke's signal, as it were, of prophetic inspiration. We read of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit with the accompanying result that the Word of God is made known through them. Now, dear friends, this particular kind of filling has nothing at all to do with the character of a person. There is, to be sure, another kind of filling of the Spirit caught up with the plerao word group that the New Testament speaks about, which does have reference to a person's character, the reproduction of the Spirit's holiness in the life of an individual. I'm talking about a different phrase bound up with a different word group, the pimplemi word group. It is a phrase that refers to a sovereign work of the Spirit himself that empowers a person to proclaim God's truth. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1. You may want to keep your finger here. Luke chapter 1. This is a scene to be sure that you are well acquainted with. The birth of John the Baptist is being announced. His father, Zechariah, is carrying out his priestly responsibilities in the temple, burning incense. Verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. I take it that he will carry out the role of a Nazarite, and he will be, watch now, filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And the reason for this filling is directly connected to the work God would have him do, the work of a prophet, verse 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. 
And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John's prophetic ministry of repentance, like under that of Elijah, necessitates the filling of the Spirit of God. By virtue of the Spirit's filling, he would be God's spokesman, the coming upon of the Spirit of God for the purpose of proclaiming the Word of God. Verse 41, after Mary is told that she will give birth to the Son of God, she is also mindful that her cousin Elizabeth is with child. Verse 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth, watch now, was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the aorist passive of pimplemi. She was filled with the Spirit. It's a sudden filling. To what end? In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The Spirit of God suddenly fills Elizabeth with the result that she proclaims Mary to be the mother of the promised Messiah, the mother of her Lord. Verse 67. John the Baptist is born, Zechariah's tongue, formerly made mute, is released. Verse 67 says, his father Zechariah, watch now, was filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is again, that aorist pimplemi. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. To what end? And he prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Here again, we read of the sudden filling of the Spirit as it is directly related to the proclamation of a word that has a supernatural origin. Acts chapter 1. Thank you for being patient. Acts chapter 1. This phrase is not mentioned here, but I read it for the purpose of setting a context. In between a paragraph that speaks about the ascension, an opening paragraph, a closing paragraph that speaks about the ascension, squeezed in between these great acts which will result in the coming of the Spirit, Jesus articulates the mission of the church. He says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. To what end? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now with that in mind, watch it happen. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, watch now, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Once again, the filling of the Holy Spirit is directly related to the making known of the Word of God. Hmm, what were these folk saying? Verse 6, 
When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Amazing. Verse 8. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And guess what Peter does? He roots the entire experience in the revelation of the Old Testament. Verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that in the last days. Welcome to the last days that had been inaugurated by the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation of Jesus, and the pouring out of the Spirit. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. To what end? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. One of the effects of the Spirit's coming would be the making known of His Word in a greater and more profusive way. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a man who had been lame since birth. A crowd gathers. He preaches the gospel. Watch how he steadily uses the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, Genesis 22, Genesis 26, Psalm 118. Use the Old Testament the way the apostles do. They learned it from Jesus. They are arrested, chapter 4, thrown in jail for a day while the Sanhedrin can get their act together, the Jewish ruling council. Finally, the next day, verse 7, they had Peter and John, chapter 4, verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Now, wait just a minute. Peter had been filled with the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Has he lost the Holy Spirit? What is this? All believers are indwelt with the Spirit of God. It is the great promise of the new covenant. All believers, I take it, are indwelt with the Holy Spirit permanently. All believers will know the effects of the Spirit's presence in their lives, particularly as it relates to the work of conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. But my dear friends, there is another work of the Spirit that we must never forget. A unique filling of the Spirit, a coming upon of the Spirit, an access of the Spirit's power that is directly related to the proclamation of the Word of God. Verse 41. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh, Verse 31. Peter and John are released. They meet up with their colleagues. Together they pray, they worship, they happily acknowledge God's sovereignty. They request his strength. Verse 31, after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all 
filled with the Holy Spirit, to what end? They spoke the word of God. And don't forget this word. We're going to come back to it. This word parousia. They spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Only two more. Thank you again for your patience. Acts 9. Acts chapter 9. It is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He meets the resurrected Lord. He is overwhelmed, undone. And God appoints a man by the name of Ananias to explain to Paul all that has happened to him. Verse 17, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what's the reason for Saul's need of filling? It's implied from verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. In fact, later on, my friends, in Acts chapter 22, when Paul is reflecting back on this incident, he says that Ananias said to him, You will be a witness for Jesus to all people of what you have seen and heard. So we're not surprised then, verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. One more, Acts 13. I love the church at Antioch. I love the first missionary journey. Oh, I find it so profoundly moving, worthy of your careful consideration. Paul and Barnabas at this point are on an island called Salamis. And there was a man there named Sergius Paulus who wanted to hear the word of God. Verse 8. But Elimus the sorcerer, Put into your mind the image of Grimma Wormtongue and Theoden. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, watch now, filled with the Holy Spirit. Arist Pimplemi, once again, as in each of these cases, he looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Now, friends, here is Paul. He is a Christian, a man who possesses the Spirit of God. Moreover, A man who at least on one prior occasion had been filled with the Spirit of God, Acts 9. But right here, we read of this sudden filling once again, Luke's signal of prophetic inspiration, and once again he speaks, at this point, a word of judgment, obviously under the direct influence of the Spirit of God. There are no more other passages. You've seen every one of them. Forgive me for being pedantic. What is this filling? 
Well, a simple examination, really, of these eight passages reveal it to be an instantaneous, sudden, and sovereign operation of the Spirit of God coming upon a man that he might proclaim the truth of God in the power of God that results in effects that are in perfect accord with the will of God. Back to 1 Corinthians 2. And my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The Spirit, with His power, through a preacher, establishes, confirms, proves, verifies the message of the gospel in the heart of a person so that he must respond to the truth he hears. It reminds me so much of John chapter 14. Remember, uh, uh, Jesus is getting ready to leave and he says to his disciples, everyone who believes in me will do the works that I've been doing and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Well, what are these greater works? Well, of course, most people are very quick to say, well, it means greater miracles. Jesus will do greater miracles. We go to the book of Acts and we say, well, is that really truly borne out? Is that what happens? Greater miracles. Whatever it means, it must be greater in some sense than what Jesus himself did. Anybody raised from the dead four days? Anybody turn water into wine? Anybody feed multitudes? So maybe we need to think a bit about this. Jesus says these greater works will happen because I go to the Father. What does that mean? It's shorthand for the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, which results in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. What happens when that takes place? Jesus who had preached, oh, in a country that's basically 120 miles long and even narrower than that, after three years of ministry, at least in the regions of Judea, he's got about 120 people. Not bad. 120 converts after three years, that is a wonderful and a good thing, but nobody in the church growth movement is going to devote a chapter to Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls upon these people on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up to preach, cites a few Old Testament texts. 3,000 people are saved. Paul says, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ, and for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. There you have it. The foolish method, message, and means. First Peter chapter 1, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. A foolish message, foolish method, foolish means. Now, before I move ahead further and press into some application, may I suggest to you the most telling illustration of all? It is so obvious it's easy for us to miss, dear friends. When it is time for the public ministry of Jesus to begin, he makes his way to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin John. 
And do you recall how this scene is recorded? Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. In the next chapter, Luke records Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. At the end of the 40 days, Luke writes, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Four verses later, he shows up at the synagogue in Nazareth, picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jubilee has come. Now, my dear friends, I understand that there is great mystery here. The nature of the hypostatic union is without question one of the most complicated theological doctrines in all of the Bible, rivaled only perhaps by the doctrine of God's three-in-oneness. Admittedly, there is great mystery. Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God come to us in human flesh, co-equal in glory and honor and deity with the Father himself. And yet... As the Son of Man, in his mediatorial role, he needed this anointing and power of the Spirit of God specifically to accomplish his work as a preacher. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us that to Jesus, God gave his Spirit without limit. Now again, I do not understand it all, but it's here, and we need to bow before it, whether or not it fully fits with our rationalized views of the Incarnation. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is granted this endowment of the Spirit's power, primarily by his own admission, for his ministry of preaching. And here now is my point. Now the penny drops. If such an endowment of power was necessary for the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, and even the incarnate Son of God himself. Do you know where I'm going? Do I need to say it? How much more will such power be needed by us? And why should this be such a consuming issue for both preachers and their congregations? I mean, why a conference, a lectureship devoted to this? Well, my friends, because of the nature of our objective. Because of the holy aim after which God has given us to strive. Notice in 1 Corinthians 2, For my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, here's the purpose clause, so that... Your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now that is why we rest upon a foolish means. It's because of what is at stake, the eternal well-being of men and women and children. You understand, young men and women, it is possible for faith to be generated by a source other than God's. You put me in a room with 25 
six-year-olds, and in 20 minutes, I can get them all to recite a prayer. I've been doing this for a long time. I can get them all to recite a prayer of salvation. They aren't any more saved than the man in the moon. You know this. It is possible for faith to be drawn out by a force other than that which is divine. But when this happens, such faith will not stand the test of time. Sooner or later it will manifest the weakness of its source in much the same way that a sick plant can reveal the poor quality of the soil in which it exists. If a person's faith in Jesus Christ is drawn out by the sentimentalisms of a preacher, the emotionally charged manipulations of a Christian singer, uh, the marketing techniques of the seeker-sensitive movement, thanks be to God that they've died a good death, then it will prove to be vulnerable to anyone who comes along and is able to outthink, outreason, outperform, outdo the previous guy. And let's face it here, friends, every one of us in this room can be outdone by somebody else. I'm sure that there are advocates of Islam that are far more articulate and intelligent than I am. I am certain that there are advocates of the theory of evolution that are much more persuasive than I could ever hope to be. The fact is, if the advancement of Christianity is depending upon the intelligence of its advocates, Christianity is doomed. In fact, with all due respect, of all people, God is the most foolish of all. After all, look at the people he chooses as Christians. Chapter 1, verse 28. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. This here sounds like Southeastern Seminary. Not many of you are wise. By human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Paul's point is this. True faith in Jesus Christ is not called into existence by the brilliance of a man's intelligence or in his skills of argumentation, nor for that matter, in any other humanly devised technique of persuasion. True Christian faith is drawn out by God's power. Never forget the divine chronology. Faith and grace are very tightly related, friends, but there is a chronology. You don't exercise faith and get grace. God gives you grace and you respond in faith. It grows out of and rests upon a manifestation of his power. And when that is the case, such a faith, though assaulted, though attacked, though assailed, will never ultimately be overthrown. Such a faith will always prove to be invincible and immovable but because the power of God is something that can never be overcome by the effort of humans. When I showed up in Corinth, Paul says, I was radically committed to a foolish message, method, and means. Why? Because of what I was aiming at. I wanted your faith in Jesus and him crucified to be drawn up by nothing but the power of God. And this, my dear friends, is our aim. That the faith of sinners be a real and saving faith resting entirely upon the person and work of Jesus. Here's the problem. Such an effect necessitates a power that only God himself can supply. 
Does this mean, by the way, that when the Holy Spirit attends the Word of God with His power, people will always be converted? No. For one thing, this will occur in settings where only believers are present. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. But also on several occasions in the book of Acts, when we read of men being filled with the Holy Spirit, we do not go on to read that people were converted. What we do read on multiple of occasions is something else. That when the Spirit of God filled Peter, his preaching was characterized by a holy confidence, boldness. That when the Spirit of God filled those Christians near the end of Acts chapter 4, they spoke the word of God in boldness. It seems that in the book of Ephesians, this is what Paul is asking for people to pray for when he says, Pray on my behalf that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with parousia, the boldness, the mystery of the gospel. Of all things, boldness seems to be the hallmark of spirit-empowered preaching. It means a freedom in speaking, an unreservedness in speech, a speech without ambiguity. My friends, when the Spirit of God comes in power, so often there is an ease of speaking, an authority, a fearlessness, as it were, that would impel you to poke your head through the very gate of hell and proclaim the gospel to people who are enslaved to that realm. May I share with you an example, and then we'll press to the finish here. Several years ago, we were having an elder meeting at my home on a Tuesday night. And one of our elders, a really faithful, wonderful brother, was conspicuously late. Don was never late. We decided to get started, and about 45 minutes later, I hear a knock on my front door, open the door, and there's Don standing there. Cheeks red, eyes filled with tears. It was obvious that he was exceedingly distressed. We brought him in. We said, Don, what's going on? He said, I've just discovered my sister Val. This is 1989. My sister Valerie has just been diagnosed with HIV. Now, some of you are too young to remember that there was a time when a diagnosis of HIV was a death sentence. And so we begin to pray for Valerie's conversion. Long story short, Valerie is converted. She dies, goes to be with the Lord. Her family asks if we would host the funeral. Of course we would. The day of the funeral comes and the church is just jammed. People in the lobby. And the interesting thing is I didn't recognize more than half of them. They were people from various support groups that Valerie had been a part of. Now her mother had asked me, would you mind if we have an open mic at some point during the service? I, I didn't think a whole lot about it. Yeah, sure, fine. When it came time for the open mic, there was a line all the way down the aisle, out into the lobby, people I'd never seen, who got up and spoke and said some of the foulest things that I think I've ever heard. Foul, dirty, immoral. People who themselves were living homosexual lifestyles, drug users who were suffering with HIV. And I held on to the arms of my seat and prayed that God would give me sanctification, that I would contain myself. Finally, about an hour and 15 minutes later, everybody was done. I got up to the pulpit and said, you know, the wisest man who ever lived said this. 
It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because death is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. And at that moment, such a profound and palpable stillness came over that room. For the next 15 minutes, I spoke the gospel, I think, in the clearest and easiest way I've ever known in my entire life. It was arresting. When the service was over, I thought it might just be me. When the service was over, we had people from our church come up to me and say, um, Art, did, did that seem a little weird to you? Ah, oh, I mean, that was so profoundly compelling and strong. It's as if God himself showed up. That was Thursday. That's happened to me one or two, three times maybe in my whole life. That was Thursday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Church gathers together for worship. I get up to preach. Prepare. Prayed. Expecting to feel the same exact thing. And it was altogether different. It felt ordinary. You should not take from this the idea that the power of the Spirit is something that is subjectively experienced. There have been those occasions, my dear young friends, when after I've felt, after I've preached, I've thought to myself, baby, I fired on all cylinders today. I was looking for fastball. I got fastball. Man, that was good. And then I get in the car to go home, and Lori says, Not feeling well today, honey? <laughs> what? Far more common? Far more common? The feeling that I've made an absolute mess of things. There are some Sundays, dear friends, I'll tell you, when I go home, I crawl up in my bed in a fetal position, and I say to the living God, I never, ever, ever want to go back to that place, see those people, and do that again. Bruce Thielman captures this idea when he says, The pulpit calls those anointed to it as the sea calls its sailors, and like the sea, it batters and bruises and does not rest. To preach, to really preach, is to die naked a little at a time and to know each time that you do it, you must do it again. I know what it's like to die naked a little at a time right here. And invariably, later in the week, I'll get a card or a text or an email from someone who will say the sense of God's voice when you were preaching was so immediate and overpowering. You're kidding me. It is imperative that I not overlook one final thing very much related to this. This power 
is not an impersonal force floating around the cosmos waiting for people to tap into it. This power is not synonymous with the force. It is the property of a person, a divine person, who dispenses it according to his own good pleasure and purpose, which tells you, young men and women, that this vitality of the Spirit is something that can never be programmed. It can't be packaged. If you are here hoping I will give you five steps to be empowered by the Spirit of God, you will be sadly mistaken. It can't be packaged. It can't be coerced. It is not available on demand for the simple reason the Spirit is the Lord who will not be domesticated. This is not just another surefire approach to church growth. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says to Nicodemus. The Spirit is sovereign, and recognizing this means we have to live with the painful possibility that he may not produce the effects that are satisfying to us. That is the occupational vulnerability of the Christian ministry. We are driven by a lofty aim without given the inherent ability to accomplish it. It breaks our hearts. There are times we go home and we say, like Isaiah, who has believed our message? And what makes all of this so agonizing is not just that our egos have been bruised, and that is always part of it. But even more, we recognize that we have fallen short of the aim that God himself has placed within our heart. And this is why young men and women, a great many preachers, redefine the aim of Christian preaching. It's because of the vulnerability attached to this aim. It's because of the pain that is inescapable when we fall short of it. There is an aim to which all Christian preaching is directed. That aim is the glory and honor and praise of Jesus Christ through the means of the saving and sanctifying of sinners. That is the objective. That is the ambition of the truly Christian preacher. But it is an aim that we will never achieve if left to ourselves. Herein is the cause of this occupational vulnerability. We are men possessed by a holy compulsion but hobbled by human inability. And yet what we all know, what we all know is this. There is genius in this dilemma. There is pain to be sure for the man called to this task. Everything in your native constitution will seek to escape it. But you must resist every temptation to elude the pain by redefining the aim. The dilemma that God has placed us in reflects a genius of a supernatural kind. It forces us. To be entirely dependent not on our seminary degrees, not on our ordination, but to be altogether dependent upon him to say, as Jacob did as he wrestled with the angel of Yahweh, I will not let you go until you bless me. You know the stereotypes. Crazy charismatics, we want the spirit. We want the spirit. Bible study, not so much. And then the rest of us, we react to that and say, just give me the raw meat of the word, man. One wants the Spirit without the Word. The other wants the Word without the Spirit. 
One is heat without light, the other is light without heat, and we must have both in indivisible oneness. It is not the Word or the Spirit, it is always the Word and the Spirit. We must stop putting asunder what God himself has joined together. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. May God grant that we would bring to the pulpits of our churches the very atmosphere of heaven and speak to our people from the borders of another world. God be with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. You could have used the sinless angels of heaven. What a thing that you would condescend to use the likes of us, people so... distinguished by their fallenness and weakness. Thank you, Father, for the community of Southeastern Seminary. They have been so profoundly blessed with gifts from you. May they understand this. May they protect this. May they cherish it. And during their days here, may they come to understand amidst all of their learning that the fastest way for them to make shipwreck of their faith is to get beyond the gospel. May they be committed to the foolish message, the foolish method, and seek you, O Spirit, as the foolish means. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for his glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.